Hi, everybody. I'm Diane Brady. I'm here with Bill Shaniger, who is Senior Partner of Modern Executive Solutions. Good to see you, Bill. And you, Diane. We're talking about the year that was, the year ahead. I want to start with um, what was on your radar for the, the world of work this past year? What do you think were some of the transformative decisions, moves, etc.? Well, I mean, you know, for sure, the, the generative AI stuff has been dominant, right? Right. No doubt about it. It's been only a year since it basically was launched in the world. And that's, um, and and all the artifacts that came off that, obviously, you know, you and I talked about, right, the open AI and that, the entity. Yeah. But also the underlying sense of how it impacts every function, how it can impact most business models, but always coming around towards the idea of the impact on the employee, Mm -hmm. where you have like the branch now of human-centered AI, and I think that is still swirling where people are trying to both catch up with the rhetoric, catch up with the technology, and then just come to grips with what are we actually allowed to do? And then what do we want to do? And I think from those an are ethical two... point of view, a regulatory wouldn't you say both what is allowed? Okay. Both. I was I was at a, a conference a couple of weeks ago on, you know, future work meets AI. Yeah. And there were some folks there from, you know, Watson, there was folk, really thoughtful folks almost around the the ethics of how what you put into the large language model mm-hmm. you know so what's legally sourced what's ethically sourced how transparent is it versus what should we be doing S- started looking a little bit how we think about like you know pii for people right mm-hmm. you know and the idea of well what should be in there mm-hmm. and i i think the jury's out honestly i mean you know it used to be old school governance like this is what's legal this is a re- this is regulatory guidance this is the company rules this may be best practice, and then here's what is a free-for-all. I don't think we're clear on that just yet. If you're a leader in the AI space, when I've talked to people, they're either like they give you a tsunami of things they're doing, or there's a certain paralysis you sense of not quite knowing where to make your bets. Do you think that we're, there's more clarity around that now, the people you talk to? I for sure think we're coalescing around some use cases. Yeah. I think if you were trying to structure it, maybe the first branch of that tree is do we know what we know mm-hmm. meaning that is the material that you could put into the llm is it actually right 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 and you know you know so if it's open source okay that's just a risk because you don't know that everything in there has been validated and is true if it's what you know it could have been right what's your process for keeping it up to date but at mm-hmm. least you know at some point it was accurate so i think the extent to which you have the information going in, it's been validated, and then the refresh cycle. Mm-hmm. I think that has to be worked out. But you can imagine stuff that we used to talk about, about like, you know, massively personalizing healthcare, mm-hmm. education, onboarding, training. Well, that might be pretty nice if there's just a function that allows it at some point to be refreshed and you know it's right. Right. I think those use cases will run pretty well. The ones where we start having to get into validating anything, particularly with performance, or pricing, or sensitive customer information. One degree more challenging because you're like, well, if that goes in the LLM, does everybody have access to it? So I think you're likely to see more fragmented private models mm-hmm. that are proprietary. I'm not sure where the open goes on that front, right? Because we can't give everyone access to it. And in the world for people, certainly it varies by regulatory environment in how you can make remember when we were all talking about machine learning and predictive algorithms for screening just resumes yeah there were some country countries particularly like in, in the eu the members of the eu or in the uk where they were like well we want a human involved we don't want a machine excluding people 
I'm not sure that we have that one nailed just yet about what can we use the algo to meaningfully differentiate between people. Before we move on, because it's such a big topic, is there any advice when clients come to you in the whole realm, it's hard because everything's contextual to the industry, to the person, but any general advice you have as people look out to 2024 as to how to be thinking or where to focus on with regard to Gen AI or AI writ large? I just love the idea of maybe take stock of knowing what you know, and it sounds trite, but if you can draw a line in the sand and say, we're going to commit to, not, if not an ongoing refresh rate, once every six months, once a quarter, out with garbage the old, in, in with the new. Out. Yes, because you can avoid garbage in, garbage out. Yeah. Because, boy, if you think about just think if you're a professional services firm. Let's say maybe you make pitch packs or deal packs. How much time do you burn on the bright young things you hire out of the best schools in America or around the world? Well, they're pulling slides. That seems kind of dumb. Yeah, with the date two years earlier right no kidding data on it but i love the idea of the time and capacity that you free up from that mundane activity to be put back into problem solving apprenticeship talking about presenting with impact Mm -hmm. well now suddenly the job is a whole lot better it's more exciting your employee value proposition would go up ex is certainly better and maybe you go back to saying we might have a smaller group but they're certainly more developed yeah let me ask um let me pivot, since you're thinking of regulation, I'm actually thinking now of, of the Supreme Court and the decisions that were made around affirmative action, et cetera. That really struck um, both a nerve with, with a lot of employers who now feel a certain, can I do this? Am I yep. allowed to do this? What, what are you seeing? So one of the nice things is I have a colleague at Modern named Larry Eamon. He was a long time at Gallup. Yeah. I was a senior partner colleague mm-hmm. there, and he convenes the most amazing groups of senior leaders, many of them CHROs, some chief talent officers, mm-hmm. and then broadening to include CEOs, chief marketing officers, chief finance officers, et cetera. And I've gotten to participate in several of these uh, these meetings, these fora, if you will. I've been so impressed and so just enlivened by almost a universal, oh no, we're still doing it, we just don't care. They can rule what they want about colleges. We're committed to diversity. Right. We know this is the right way to run an organization, and we are committed to doing it, period. The first time I heard that, I was like, oh, thank God. Right, because you remember they had the round table and the, all the ESG sign-offs right before COVID. Right. And then immediately after was this first real test, and some of them back, backslid off that. And it wasn't a multi-stakeholder perspective. It was fire, shut down, do this, right? Yep. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I thought, oh, how great, right? Now, what I do think is interesting is I think many of them are being thoughtful about raving, waving the red cape that is some of the titles. Mm-hmm. So is a chief diversity officer just focused on diversity, or is that person really the chief talent officer? Mm-hmm. And they were being thoughtful about the group of people they bring in and the pools and how they pick leaders. The word diversity needs a rebrand. I th- kind I, of I, lose I, people hello net when you say inclusion, diversity. Yep. You don't mean to. Everybody wants the same outcome, but it, it evokes a certain bureaucracy and a box checking for, for a lot sure. of people. For sure, I mean, right or wrong, it has come to be a bit like old affirmative action programs. It's an EEOC exercise. When I think the modern version of it really is around talent, mm-hmm. you know, and looking for alternative sources of talent and finding ways to be skills focused, not pedigree focused. Well, that's wonderful, right? And, and for sure, when diversity is treated as an outcome, not an activity, it has a whole different stance to it. 
And so maybe we're the really turning the corner. The former being better. For sure. Yeah. yeah. You know, if you think about D, E, and I, E in particular, equitable access to opportunity, mm-hmm. should start upstream in recruiting, how you're thoughtful about engaging candidates, how you onboard them, the kind of training, the first placement, all mm-hmm. of that, all equitable in mm-hmm. access. And then the environment you put them into, don't make them a one, don't make them singular mm-hmm. or a token. It's an inclusive environment where you can look around and go, oh, I can be here. Mm-hmm. I can see this. That's wonderful. When you do that, the, particularly the E&I together, you get great D outcomes. Mm-hmm. That's talent. And so I think that's, I think it's nice, the repositioning of that. I want to, the E, I immediately think of economy. And I am really unclear when I speak to leaders as to how they're thinking about the economy. Because I keep hearing about more layoffs, concern. <laughs> volatility and yet the economy looks pretty good it does you know for like technically um so what are people coming to you for what are you seeing yourself you know it reminds me a little bit a little bit after not so the sharpness of when the dot-com crash happened i Mm -hmm. think there You're was talking a, dot com crash back 2000, 2000 right there right. was a hyper indexing towards anything that was e dot or mm-hmm. you know whatever right and i think there it was a rebalancing of financial capital and human capital back towards a broader range again of different sectors yeah so you had more puts and takes as opposed to everybody just piling into things they shouldn't in the financial crisis i felt like the softer landing was a little bit more achieved because we kind of licked our wounds on not understanding risk Thank you, big government. Partly, (laughs) not totally, partly. For sure. But a a, a more thoughtful response about Mm -hmm. how do we we keep Americans to work? Mm -hmm. How are we thoughtful about how we participate in the global economy? And ease our way back in. I also think we might have learned a little bit of a lesson about how not not to treat our houses as ATMs. Right. Right? Right. You know, when when your single largest source of private wealth is suddenly being put underwater. It's problematic from mm-hmm. it, from you know for a consumption economy, right? Mm-hmm. This time, I have a you know clearly I'm not an economist. I mean my PhD is in management, right? But I, I know how to look at the economic numbers, and it always looks pretty good to me. <laughs> I'm like, well, what are we concerned about? I think our hyperfixation on the tech sector in general has made us a little wary of the massive run up and spike that happened when we were all closed in. Yeah, that's and then we're true. reopened. You know, since your time at dot com crash, financial crash, you would argue the next big crisis really was COVID. Are we still in recovery from that in some ways? I think, but boy, I I think more is behind us than is in front of us. Of course, that's, I that, think that feels so. that way to me. Yeah, I mean, the only thing that would be if we got a variant that suddenly the test didn't work on, mm-hmm. or we needed a real new approach, I think that would be scary. I'm thinking more the mindset. So, like when you think about the the concern about the economy is the concern that let's take productivity and the fact that are people fully back to work in the sense of what we're used to seeing pre-pandemic. Right. Well, I think the JOLTS data would suggest that people who want to work have opportunities. Mm -hmm. Full stop. We still have a gap between what's people looking to fill the job and the people who are, you know, that's that's still there, right? Mm -hmm. We don't have enough people still working. Working in the traditional sense, let me be clear. We had a lot of businesses start up. I do think this phenomenon of people, what was being labeled double dipping, mm-hmm. I think that's a thing. Probably between 5 and per- five to 10% of the workforce. Working not, two jobs at once. Yeah. Ergo, not doing either job that well. Well, potentially. I don't, I don't know. I mean, it, look, that's that's the normal response. You know, um, my former colleague, Aaron DeSmet, and I used to talk about this yeah. a lot and saying, why do we care about 40? What's magical about 40 hours? Shouldn't we care about the outcome? Yeah. 
If you can do it in 15, good for you. Right. I mean, I re-engaged on an op-ed I'd put out, I don't know, over a year ago on why not the 20-hour work week. Why not? There was a book, The 4-Hour Work Week, wasn't there? And that was apparently (laughs) doable for him. Yeah. Um, But, well, I think what's interesting is you've got this division between the remote the in-person. I don't know if there's a generational difference. There's been some indication that's the case. But that does seem to create a different mindset for the companies that are pivoting one way or the other. Like, Absolutely. Not everybody's true. Like hybrid, they all lean one way or the other. For sure. And, you know, um, one of the things I had done with my McKinsey colleagues was looking at this and saying, is it age-specific, generational, or is it family context? Family context explained way more than age. I've got kids and I need to be home. Yeah, usually it was um, if you had one mouth to feed and or a second major like sort of claim on your time. Yeah. You know, I've got a parent who's ill and I have a child. I have two childs, you know, whatever, yep, two yeah, children, yeah. whatever. Um, that was a big, big, big differentiator in terms of their willingness to leave without, without another job lined up and their need and desire for flexibility. And mm-hmm. flexibility here is the expanded version of what I do, how I do it, where I do it, with whom I do it, mm-hmm. and when I do it. The nonlinear workday was really a product that I think many people learned was possible during mm-hmm. COVID. Mm-hmm. Got to get the kids off to school, feed them breakfast. Oh, but wait, now they're homeschooled. Okay, I can get these hours in at work because my partner's, you know, that sort of juggling. Yeah. As opposed to the show up by nine, show up at five. So I, I think we are still working that out because now that people have gotten a taste of I can get the outcome done the deliverable, why do you care when I do it? And to me, this is the big, this is the big conundrum. Outcome focused versus performative, which may or may not have the outcomes. Define performative when you because I don't think well, that's being seen, okay. being seen to show up at a certain time. Oh, being I see. seen at one's I've, desk. It's like clocking, you know, punching right. the clock basically. And you know, it's not universally good or bad. I mean, I will tell you, my I have a twenty four year old son who, mm-hmm. you know, works in the consulting arm of one of the big four. In his intern summer and in his earliest work, he wants to be in the office every day. He wants to be at the client site. He I wants would too live that, apprenticeship. That Me too. Me too. I mean, I, I've, you know, modern is, had been largely remote, born more out of search, yeah. you know, than the consulting arm. And I have found myself as a new leader, learning new people saying, I, I just desperately need to see these people. Yeah. So I convened them, you know, last week. And it was like, for me, I needed to fill up. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like I was coming out of an era with a you know with a desk and a bunch of uh, a, a sea of cubes. I just needed to see these people, and we could start developing a language and some norms around how we're going to work together. What I worry for organizations now is they continue to allow themselves to be done run down the road of a one or a zero. And I think we have got to find a way to say, "Oh, you get this, I get this," as if it's the person driving it mm-hmm. or the company driving it, as opposed to let's let the work drive it. There's nothing wrong with saying starting new work means we should probably be together. Yep. The company ought to be able to say, I get a day a month because I want us to celebrate and know what's going on. And the union working ought to get together for some coordination. That ought to be reasonable. Mm-hmm. To this point, it still feels a little bit like a tug of war to me. And when I hear leaders talking about it, it is almost always describing a power dynamic and what they have to do or what they're going to do as opposed to work driven. So I, I think we're losing that battle a little bit just from the credibility of why wouldn't you base it on the work as opposed to who's in charge. There's a perception among leaders that remote workers are not as productive. And now I don't know if that's universal, because I've certainly met some leaders who believe they are as productive, yep. and their cost base has gone down, and yeehaw. But um, I get this sense of dissatisfaction usually among the managers, not the managed. For sure, 
The dynamic that was occurring immediately when COVID started was remarkable, largely because we were trading on an installed base of employees who knew how to get things done together. Yeah. As we've been systematically rolling in new employees who've not been inv- who've been on bo- not been onboarded in person, who've not worked together, it starts feeling more and more like bead strung individual efforts as opposed to collaborative efforts. Mm-hmm. I think the extent to which work is an individual contributor, maybe they can still be productive based on that person and their context. But if it's collaborative work, it most certainly is not as effective. Yep. And I, I think that's being now used as a reason to bring everyone back full time with a mandate. I'm also not sure that's the answer. I mean, people have learned life happens. Yeah. And, and that, if you want to engage the people who have the complex work environments, the complex home environments, you need to give them flexibility. Um, oh, so, I think so. And I think real flexibility, right? Like yeah. acknowledging that if I need to do this tonight from 8 to 10, why not? Yeah. With right. a face mask on, who cares, right? That's, right. that's my problem. I want to move to, if, unless we can certainly, I think this conversation will, will, bleed into this one which is the other e that comes to mind is elections which really is about really the geopolitical landscape has impacted business in a way that is unusual not just you know started with ukraine of course the israel hamas war we've seen university presidents going before congress some fired some not always controversial but that kind of infiltration of politics into the workplace is difficult when you marry it with what's perceived to be still cancel culture what advice or, well i'll or tell you i'm so worried about that yeah right i think you know how you like you have the opening salvo comments where you know gen ai is an easy one to talk about right right you know are we still going to use any expatriates you know gen ai what does that mean you know how do we how do we feel about you know foreign trade right all those are safe topics the whisper conversation is this topic what are we going to do as we get closer to the election yeah if you roll back to the Me Too movement and to George Floyd, that was the start of the end of the era of employees saying employers could thread the needle and not talk about it. And I think now they're very clearly saying, "Oh, you using will. civility as as a as a banner, quiet civility, quiet. you know, a, a good civil discourse. You know, the old rules like when you go to someone's house for dinner, you don't talk about religion or politics, right? I think that's done." Was that necessarily a better framework? Because, again, part of what George Floyd brought to us was a recognition that there were things not being discussed, like institutionalized racism that needed to be discussed. Well, if you were the people in charge, it was very nice to keep it under wraps. Right. It gave the appearance that it's not a problem. Right. Right. Um, I think it was necessary, just from a straight consciousness-raising standpoint, we probably ought to take into account what's actually going on in the communities we do business with and with the people that we do business with. So I think that was a good thing, even if it made it a bit uncomfortable. And of course, you'll get the retort, which is, well, this is a profit-making enterprise. Is it really just that? Because, you know, a couple of years ago, we all signed on for ESG and the multi-stakeholder perspective, which yeah. said we had a commitment to our employees, our communities, our customers. Surely the social and political environment plays into that. Well, and how safe I feel at work. Like, I think about the conversations around how Jewish students are feeling on campus. You could argue if those conversations continue to the workplace, how do Jewish employees feel if, you know, about or to that, you know, and Muslim employees or anybody well, else right. who has strong views right. on Israel Hamas being one of the topics du jour? Yeah, I mean, look, this, it's super interesting. I mean, you know, race in America 
had dominated for a long period of time. Just as, as, as an observer of a person of a white male who is Christian in orientation, mm-hmm. this topic does seem to have really reignited the fires of is any dissent, is any question about a two-state solution or not, is it somehow anti-Semitic? You know, and that I, I worry a little for organizations and say, where, where if at work, if you believe that you spend most of your waking hours at work mm-hmm. and that you think that you can make people's lives better by addressing how work, the workplace is, surely we have to include civil discourse. The ability to acknowledge that we may not agree on things, but we can still collaborate. I worry greatly for organizations that run themselves into the one and zero and say, well, we're just not going to talk about that. I think the employees, if we're not careful, will increasingly segregate themselves. You know, you seg- segregate themselves to being, I want to work with like-minded people. Yes. Yeah. So we're, see- we're going to see a segregation of corporate America in the same way we've seen a segregation of America writ large. I worry if we are not careful, we will find ourselves truly polemically split. You know, I, I'm, I am right-leaning. I am evangelical Christian in my orientation. I am progressive in my orientation. I only want to work remote. I don't want to be forced to ever come in. I only want to work in person. Now, I'm, I'm only being slightly hyperbolic in that you see these fault lines. And in our history, in America, even when you looked, and I think wonderfully brought out, like in Freakonomics and other behavioral economists, even if you had a slight disposition that you didn't want to be the only person in your neighborhood who looked like you, and by and large, you were good with a diverse neighborhood. Within two generations, it would look segregated. Why is that? Well, it starts to Human accelerate. Nature? Yeah, well, and it also starts to accelerate the concern that, oh, is this for me anymore? Can I mm-hmm. be present here? Now, often that's been held out by white America, largely in charge, <coughs> saying, well, see, okay, that's, that's why we have to have an enclave. I worry now that's, that's well, not only have we not learned our lesson along racial lines, because we clearly have not. Excuse me, as you see, just like what yesterday or the day before, you're seeing, you know, large credit unions denying applications for mortgages. It's like, right. come on. The Navy, right? and then this, you're talking about referring to that um, basically black members right. were right. denied at a, denied at, at, at yeah. a higher level I mean, than that's right. old school. That's old school disparate treatment. That's right. not adverse impact, right? right. That's treating different, period. And what I worry about there is, what if we get to the point where at work we decide, well, we don't talk about that here. Well, what do we talk about? I mean, if you're bringing your whole self to work, no matter what it is, surely these things have to come up. And you can either engage them in a way that is civil discourse and acknowledge that we don't agree on everything, or you don't talk about it all and what's going to happen. That becomes untenable at work because the pressure and, and the pressure and the tension is always there and does, you will have a split. Does civil discourse look different in this environment than it used to? Because we were talking about civil discourse pre-George Floyd basically being, if you're going to like polite conversation, it's got to look different now in a world where we bring our whole selves to work and these issues are top of mind because we feel like we're living them every day. You know, I wonder, I think it does. I do. I there was an era when we would read a story and we'd be on A1 and then we'd go to A14 and we'd finish somewhere in the back. I mean, the long form, the long form interview, the mm-hmm. long form article, you'd read something in the New Yorker or the Economist that spans seven, eight pages. Right. right? You know, electromagnetic fields. I remember it well. <laughs> yeah, it's just the idea. Everything where you wanted to know. You wanted to understand it. And that actually allowed for a nuanced conversation. In a strange way, and it's not to knock social media, obviously it's here to stay, but the Twitterization 
we think in 140 characters. Or yeah, whatever it was, 168, 140, whatever yeah. it is. I mean, I, it's as if the tagline has become, it, with no understanding what's underneath it. And I, I think it's, I think it's been to the detriment of our ability to problem solve and particularly our ability to empathize with anyone who doesn't immediately spit out the exact same tagline. So it's an interesting challenge. I think it's a good one to kind of, you know, create the full loop of the conversation, which is if I'm somebody who is hiring people, managing people in this environment, I want to create inclusion. At the same time, I don't want to create the sort of anger-based culture that we've seen yep. outside of the corporations, sometimes inside. What do you do? given the realities of how people think and the importance of these issues? Well, I think you can assess for it, for sure. I mean, you know, certainly with my new colleagues, committed to assessment, real psychometrically sound assessment on personality, on triggers, right, on the kind of things that we derailers. There are different personality types that are open to new experience, comfortable with ambiguity, not neurotic, right? You know, not, not, not a narcissist. Right. So the idea that if you can have someone who's open to new experiences, willing to take in alternative points of view, it's good for problem solving, it's good for client service, it's actually good for collegial interactions. Is it hard to find those people or is that the norm? No, it's not hard. You just have to look. So you just have to basically screen for the people that are going to be... At a minimum, be thoughtful about the people you're hiring and then the groups in which you put them together. Right. You know, I mean, a, a, good, a good mix, a good healthy tension is possible provided with good leadership, good working norms, and also a group of people who are open to roll with it a yeah. little bit. Yeah, and a diverse groups moderate each other. I you think know? so. You don't want to be the idiot in the room. Well, also from a risk standpoint, you definitely do not want homogenous groups. That's yeah. been proven time and time again. It's terrible for problem solving. Yeah. You, know, you're, you rapidly coalesce around one decision because you all think the same way. So let's look ahead to 2024. Anything else that's on your radar, Bill, that, that you want to put on ours in terms of trends you're watching, people you're watching, or even um, industries that come to mind? I know we've talked about trends that really sort of permeate all industries yep. at this point. Well, for sure, tech settling down would be nice. I mean, you know, the, the real run-up, the unmitigated growth for long periods of time, then the resetting of, of the labor pool. Hopefully that settles down a bit, mm -hmm. right? That would mm -hmm. be good. I do think that's been good for other companies who always felt like there needed to be some insane premium for anyone right. with a tech background, that might be... Compete with the behemoths. Coming now back to the pack might be useful a little bit. Um, are wage expectations in line with reality? Well, I mean, I, you know, there's look, there's sector by sector and skill pool by skill pool differences, but I think, we've, I think we've gotten it... I think we're a little closer to what equilibrium is. I think okay. maybe we can start trusting what the market is. I do think, uh, assuming we don't have another bump in inflation, I don't think we will, in which case you can keep up. Right. I think we'll likely end up seeing a recalibration of higher education in America, leaning more towards a broader range of degree granting, non-degree granting, credentialing, and just good old-fashioned training. Mm -hmm. As they're facing the demographic cliff coming, you know, which is the label they use in you know, Chronicle Higher Education 2026, both the number of boys not going to school and just the sheer number of kids to be of the age ago, they have to find their way into broader populist training. Right. education that, that right. employers need. Offering opportunities to older workers, keeping For sure. them engaged. For sure. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a trustee at what was Moravian College, mm -hmm. now called Moravian University, and they'll be, you know, launching a new school of professional studies and innovation. And that's mm. entirely saying part of what we do is educate the populace, but part of, part of what we do is educate workers. Yep. 
and what's needed for that. I think that's a wonderful pivot for higher education to get into. I think so. It doesn't mean that the liberal arts orientation is a bad idea. Of course, helping people think more expansively is good for the world. Mm-hmm. But maybe a little bit more training too, huh? Good. So I think that one, and then the, I think the last one, I wonder if we aren't going to continue to see, and I think the UAW was the early marker of this, much more significant and much more pointed labor activism. Stemming from a feeling of being hard done by or stemming from a different trend? Yes. 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 I think the threat of ongoing ongoing employability, a sense that after, you know, by and large 30 years of underinvestment in training and development, and a sense that the bounce back in corporate and particularly the iconic CEO mm-hmm. salaries, we went to them you know, when COVID occurred and we're with a little bit of a hat in the hand saying, hey, help us stay open. Yeah. I'm not sure that at least in the discourse and what's being talked about, we've done enough to make them whole. Mm. Okay, interesting. Good trends to watch. It's always a pleasure to speak with you and uh, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you.